1: With Discover, limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code Jason T so they know I sent you. Twenty-one plus and present in present Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in fourteen days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. one 877 770 Stop in Louisiana. 1 800 270 7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467 369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1 800 889 9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Welcome to Lakers Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at the volume. I am Jason Timp. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope you all had a great week and that you have big plans for the weekend. We are going to talk a ton of Lakers tonight. That was, you know, probably the most frustrating basketball game that I can remember watching when you factor in all of the details surrounding the situation this Lakers team has been super frustrating all season but there have been varying reasons why it was livable for one reason or another whether it was early in the season so you knew there was a long runway to try to figure things out or you could point to a clear personnel issue like an injury or the need to play a player that You would never in a million years play unless you absolutely had to because you were back against, was against the wall with a bunch of unforeseen circumstances. This was not any of that. This was as close to a must win as you could possibly imagine for this team. They had more than enough personnel available to win the game handily. And not only did they lose, but they actively sabotaged themselves, which is something that has been a a, a very persistent problem throughout the entire season. It's like that coach from the Arizona Cardinals after that famous Monday Night Football loss. They are who we thought they were. When a team tells you everything they are about themselves over a massive, massive sample size, it's unrealistic to expect them to change. And a lot of that's on me. If you guys remember, I last night laid out the case for how a Lakers play-in berth could realistically happen and how they could use that berth to potentially make some noise in a playoff run. And I explained to you guys using one stat that they actually had a better punch than they've shown for most of the season. I pointed out that in 184 minutes this season, coming into tonight, with LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook on the floor with no center, they were plus 11.4 net, meaning they were outscoring teams by 11 and a half points per 100 possessions. But there was a very important stat that I threw out before that, if you guys remember. I said there are some bad LeBron and AD stats. And I told you that this season, coming into tonight, when the Lakers had LeBron and Anthony Davis on the floor together, they had a, a negative net rating and one that was worse than they were last year with LeBron and AD on the bench at the same time. So that's how bad they've been this season with LeBron and AD on the floor. So what's the difference between those two scenarios? Why are LeBron AD and Russ with no center playing relatively well? And why are LeBron and AD in general, in the totality of their minutes playing so poorly and the obvious reason why was throughout the entire season, the Lakers either by either forced by injury at various points or simply because of malpractice from the coaching staff, they very frequently played their worst players alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Basketball, you know, coaches have like there's a coaches have a philosophy that they bring to a situation. Frank Vogel has a core philosophy, right? And it centers around controlling the interior as a defensive team, shutting off the paint, but also rebounding, controlling the glass. It's all about physical dominance. And with the 2020 Lakers, that worked. That's why I've been so defensive of Frank Vogel over this entire span. But the league has changed a lot in the last two years. And that particular team was so skilled down the roster. When you really looked at all the players they had in their rotation, Alex Crusoe, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Kyle Kuzma, that was a better version of Dwight Howard. JaVale McGee is a much better backup center than anybody they had that season. He was actually started. That team was significantly more talented. This team is not so much. So you can't afford to play away from your strengths. And, you know, there's, it's a, the, the concept. It's, it's like the concept of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is seeing something that that com- when you have a specific worldview, you're going to gravitate towards data and you're going to gravitate towards evidence that confirms your belief. We have had so much evidence this year that this team is at their best. When Anthony Davis is at the center position and they play their younger players, when they play Austin Reeves, when they play Stanley Johnson, when they play Malik Monk alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis, that is when this team has been at its best. And there's been significant data to back that up. But Frank Vogel has consistently ignored that data. I told you guys after they beat the jazz earlier this season, they beat the jazz, they run them off the floor. It's that Stanley Johnson, LeBron pick and roll at the end of the game. And there was an amazing lineup that finished the game. It was Austin Reeves, Malik Monk, Stanley Johnson, LeBron, and I believe it might have been Taylor, and I can't remember who the fourth, fifth guy was. But they had a core lineup that controlled that game in the fourth quarter. Frank did not play that lineup a single minute the next game. Not a single minute. So he had data right there in his face, proof that what he was doing was working with that group. And he completely ignored it and went back to what he was comfortable with in the next game. That's confirmation bias. That's seeing two sets of data, a data that goes against your worldview and data that goes towards your worldview, and ignoring the data, the clear and obvious data that goes against your worldview. Frank doesn't like to play this way. Frank doesn't want to play Anthony Davis at center. He loves having two bigs on the floor. He wants to play traditional, old-school, plotting basketball. That's what he wants to do. He wants to live in the half court and play like he did with Roy Hibbert in the Indiana Pacers, which worked back in the day. This is a completely different league now. His worldview is inherently flawed for this NBA in the year 2022. So here we go. Fast forward to today. Like I point out, 183 minutes. LeBron AD, no center, plus 11.4. Le- LeBron AD in totality, negative. So obviously that's the way they need to play. LeBron and AD at center. But he in that first half tonight, you play 24 minutes of basketball. By my count, they played about three minutes and 14 seconds with LeBron and AD and no center with Russ. Three minutes and 14 seconds out of 28 available. So all of the data in the world all of the success in the world screaming that you need to play this way, but Frank wants to play his way. And you know, obviously towards the end of the game, there was a there was a point, about seven and a half minutes left in the third quarter, where Frank did finally go. To, he took Dwight out of the game and he, he played LeBron AD and Russ without a center. Bingo bango. They went on a run right away. LeBron was just getting to the basket every single time down the floor. He actually I have a big feeling that LeBron like. You know LeBron and AD are are they look like themselves for the most part tonight, right? But the context here is is neither of them has played consistently of late. So their conditioning wasn't there. This was a game you had to win early. This was a game you had to avoid crunch time at all costs. Because you knew that the longer the game dragged on, the longer it was competitive the more likely LeBron and AD's rust and conditioning would become a problem, and it did. LeBron fired off everything he had in the tank in that third quarter. Had absolutely no lift in the fourth. Don't think it was the ankle. I think it was fatigue. It's, it's completely unrealistic to expect him to take a bunch of time off like that and then to just walk back onto a basketball court and be able to play 40 minutes of high-level NBA basketball. That's unrealistic. This was a game where you had to come in and play to your strengths, and close the deal early. But instead, it was close. And what do I always tell you guys? If a game is close at the end, literally anything can happen. I remember watching a game in the bubble in 2020, and I watched DJ Augustine of the Orlando Magic personally execute the Milwaukee Bucks with a couple of big shots at the end of the game because they played with their food all night. They ended up winning the next four games and won the series. But I can't tell you how many times in my time watching basketball, I've seen a team play with their food for whatever reason. Usually it's just effort related. The Lakers actively sabotage themselves with strategy. But you find yourself in a close game. There's eight minutes left and anything can happen. So guess what happens? Jonas Valanciunas makes a weird lurching three from the top of the key because that's the kind of thing that can happen in a close game. There is a play where Jonas Valanciunas posts up Anthony Davis and uses his off arm to clear space for the shot and gets a foul call. I thought it was a really bad call. But guess what happens in really close games sometimes? Really bad calls. It's part of the deal. There were some really good looks that people missed at the end of the game. For the Lakers, what happens when you're in a close game? Sometimes you miss shots. This just happened last week or it might've been a week ago, might've been two weeks ago, against Washington. Played with their food, blew a lead. It was close. Next thing you know, LeBron was missing a wide open three at the end. Russ missed a wide open three, and they got killed by Kristaps Porzingis making contested jump shots. Because that's what happens when you mess around with a team and get into a close game. This was a, This is a team, I, I told you guys yesterday, if LeBron and AD really were engaged, which I I thought they were tonight. But there was no reason in the world why they shouldn't go 5-1 down the stretch. Because they are, even with all of the issues surrounding the two of them on the roster this year, they're good enough to win these games. They're good enough to beat the Nuggets. They're good enough to beat Golden State if Steph Curry's hurt. They're good enough to beat everybody remaining on their schedule but the Suns. That's how good they are. They're good enough to go out tonight and have the Pelicans down... 85 to, to 68 going into the fourth quarter to where LeBron and AD could run out of gas and be fatigued and it could not be a problem. But instead they played with their food and instead Frank went right. This, this is ridiculous. So first of all, the starters. I've told you guys all season, I've done videos on it. I've done uh, uh, breakdowns. I've shown you guys numbers. I've shown you everything that I can to show that the best players on the roster were Austin Reeves, Stanley Johnson, Malik Monk and Talon Horton Tucker alongside LeBron and AD. Austin Reeves didn't play tonight. I, I get it. He hadn't played super well in the previous few games. But if you know anything about the game of basketball, you know guys like Austin Reeves, glue guys, guys who are fifth men in lineups, they require talent alongside them to get them the easy opportunities that they capitalize on. Austin Reeves was always going to look worse with LeBron and AD off the floor. He's not a guy that can create a ton of things for himself against set defenses. He's not a guy who's going to thrive if he's being guarded all the time. He was going to play a lot better with LeBron and AD coming back. There was no reason in the world to play, Austin, to play Avery Bradley over him tonight. That isn't a completely inconscionable decision. That is, there is no defense for it. I, I, I cannot even fathom an, a, a reason why he would do so. And guess, what, guess who was cooking like crazy to start the game? C.J. McCollum. Why? Because C.J. McCollum is bigger than Avery Bradley. He's smarter than Avery Bradley. And Avery Bradley's not good enough on ball anymore to really disrupt players like that. And he's a terrible off-ball defender. He freelances like crazy. Play in the first quarter. Dwight Howard's got Brandon Ingram on a switch. There are two Pelican bigs under the basket. Uh, LeBron James is waiting under the basket. Anthony Davis is waiting under the basket. Who cares if Dwight Howard gets beat off the dribble? Avery Bradley just randomly runs over and double teams. Brandon Ingram gives up a wide-open three to C.J. McCollum. And you can guess how that went. Austin Reeves doesn't make that kind of mistake. He's a low, he's a high floor, low ceiling guy. He's the perfect guy to be the fifth man in a lineup. He doesn't freelance. He doesn't make mistakes. He simply does his job. He never forces a bad shot. He attacks closeouts and makes great reads. He is the ideal player to put alongside Russ LeBron and Anthony Davis, and he did not play tonight. It's completely indefensible. First sub of the game, they put Monk in for Russ. That's fine. Then they bring in DJ Augustine for Dwight Howard. So you go small, and your response is to have Malik Monk and DJ Augustine on the floor. DJ Augustine needed to play earlier when this team was decimated by injuries. There was no reason in the world for him to be in the rotation tonight. Not a single reason in the world. And then we go into the second quarter. You have LeBron James and Anthony Davis on your team. And you started the second quarter with DJ Augustine, Russell Westbrook, Malik Monk, Stanley Johnson, and Wenyan Gabriel. That's an indefensible decision. And then as soon as you brought Anthony Davis back in the middle of the second quarter, here came Dwight Howard with him. I just, it's been like this all season. You can't afford as a basketball team to have this many factors working against you. We just saw with the Memphis Grizzlies who beat the shit out of the Phoenix Suns tonight. It was relatively close and competitive, but Memphis controlled that game. They did it without their their best players. They did it without Jaron Jackson Jr., without Steven Adams, without John Morant, without Desmond Bain. Because that's the only thing that was working against them tonight, missing players. They don't have a scheme that actively goes against their strengths. They don't have a coach that is stubbornly uh, entrenched in his in his outdated approach to the game of basketball, they don't have a, a a front office and ownership group that is is just steeped in 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 like weird familial dynamics and an inability to empower the proper people in the job. They don't have those issues, so they can overcome one issue. This Laker team can't afford to have to with all of the issues they have. With the Russ mistake and everything that surrounded that, letting Alex Caruso go, having these inferior role players, you can't afford to then have a coach that also doesn't play the good players you have. I, I've done so much to defend Frank Vogel over the course of this season because I have the utmost respect for what his, he's capable of as a defensive coach when he's given the tools. But this is just, look, dude, y- you've got to adapt. And the, the Lakers have a handful of guys on their roster that are completely unwilling to do so. Anthony Davis thinks he's Kevin Durant and is insistent on taking really difficult mid-range jump shots for a lot of his offense. It wasn't so bad tonight, but that's been an issue over the course of the last two years. You've got Russell Westbrook, who literally went on yet another interview yesterday. Sob story, I'm just pushing through a really tough season. Not a single word out of his mouth about how he's one of the least skilled guards in the entire NBA. Not a single word out of his mouth about how, you know, hey, maybe this season has shown me that I need to make some improvements this offseason in the skill areas of my game. And then you've got Frank Vogel, who thinks it's 2013 with Roy Hibbert still. There's way too much stubbornness on this roster. There's way too much stubbornness in this system. Now, they're not completely dead. They can overcome this. I said they'd go 5-1. and one. Maybe they go 4-2, and two and they still get into the play-in spot. But my optimism was centered around them playing into their strengths. I did that whole video yesterday, and they went out and tossed it all in the garbage. Everything they learned over the course of the season, they tossed in the garbage. And, and so now... Do I think they're going to make the playing game? No, because they got to go beat Denver on Sunday. And if they continue to do the same thing they did tonight, they're going to lose to Denver on Sunday. So they're not going to make the play-in tournament. And they're going to get eliminated. They're going to go home early. And next thing you know, the blame game will start, and Frank will get fired, and Russell will get traded away, and they'll, they'll pretend everything's fine. But if this team doesn't start getting smarter, they're not going to be able to overcome some of the restrictions they have with their cap sheet. When you're operating on the fringes like this, when you've got LeBron and Anthony Davis making a ton of money, and you've got this albatross of a Russ contract that you have to deal with, you have to be smart. You have to be the smarter team. You can't be the dumb team. I talked a lot about this yesterday with the Clippers. Right down the hall, in Crypto.com Arena, there is a team that has been dealing with significantly lesser talent this season who has been significantly better. Why? Because they don't have nepotism in their front office, because they hire smart people to do the job, because they have a coach that literally just in the last four or five years has completely changed his approach and philosophy of the game. When he was in Cleveland, he was basically Doc Rivers' light. Now he's... Mr. 5-out, Mr. Embrace, all of the modern trends in basketball. That, that team is, from the top down, so incredibly smart. And, and this Laker team, it basically has LeBron James going for it. Once again tonight, just this could have been even worse if LeBron didn't go crazy like he did in the third quarter. And it's unfortunate. And, and again, he had to do that in the third quarter to keep that game competitive, and they were only up by one going into the fourth quarter, and he was out of gas. That's you can't ask that of LeBron at this point of it, in his career. He can't be get fifty every night guy. No one's ever been that guy, not since Wilt, and that was a completely different sport. I just it's as discouraging as anything that I can remember watching as a fan. You know. I am not your traditional Lakers fan. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. But in 2019, I started covering the team. I fell in love with the team because that 2020 Laker team was so much fun. They they played directly into their strengths. The coach was perfect for the roster they had. LeBron and AD were completely dialed in. They tried harder than everybody every single night. And they were winners. Those dudes were winners. And it was a fun team to cover. And literally this season has been such a departure from that. It's like, it's hardly even recognizable. And it is is what it is. You know, Anthony Davis, he looked fine. But this dude hasn't been able to stay on the court for more than a handful of games at a time, literally since the bubble. It's going to take a while for him to get back to where he's at. LeBron is dealing with an injury himself. He's not in shape yet. He doesn't have his rhythm yet. You, you can't afford right now to not bring your best to the table every night. And this team willingly, deliberately does not bring their best. Last thing I wanted to hit on with the Lakers before we move on was Russ. You know, he, I thought he, it was a classic Russ game in the sense that he had a lot of bad that he brought to the table, but he also had a lot of good that he brought to the table. When he was guarding Brandon Ingram in isolation, he did a really nice job holding his ground with physicality, making Brandon Ingram shoot over the top. He did something that I've always thought is really smart when you're a shorter defender. Don't try to block the shot. Don't try to contest the shot. Contest the face. He was doing a really nice job of just getting his hand right there in in Brandon Ingram's face, and he made him miss some shots. It was good defense. But then when he would get in pick and roll coverages, he kept dying on the screens. When he would get matched up with CJ McCollum, he did a really bad job because it's a little bit more labor intensive. And then... You know, this is the classic thing that happens with Russ all the time. Makes two huge threes early fourth quarter to put the team up 86 to 80. But the problem is, is this season he's been shooting 28.5% on catch and shoot threes coming into tonight. 28.5%. And what did he do a few possessions later? He took an off the dribble three on the left wing and airballed it. Sandwiching those two threes was two air balls mixed in with a ton of trash talk and the team gave up 64 points in the second half with LeBron and AD on the floor. It's just not good enough. I I think Russ has to... Russ has to come to terms with the fact that he needs to completely adjust the way he plays basketball. He's got to go into this offseason and massively improve the skill areas of this game. I don't understand how he doesn't look across the way and see CJ McCollum and think, I need to be able to do that stuff. All these NBA guards are incredible with what they can do with the basketball. And Russ just has not made an attempt to build that out in his game. Just simply has not put the work in. I, and like, and, and that's, what I'm, that's what I'm sick of. They're talking trash to you, Russ, when you airball that shot because you actually can't shoot. And the two threes you made are two of the few that you've made because when you've caught and shot threes this year, you've made less than 29% of them. That's why they're talking trash. So you rubbing it in their face doesn't actually accomplish anything. The only thing that's going to accomplish anything is you getting in the gym this summer, man. Work on your game. You can't be 6'3 LeBron every more, anymore that just runs people over. You've got to get more skilled. But in, in summation, to put a bow on this whole thing with the Lakers, I'm annoyed. I'm frustrated. I, I This season just needs to be put in the rearview mirror and that, that, that there's so much self-reflection that needs to be done within that franchise. And it figures that the final nail in the coffin would be Frank Vogel dipping right back into every mistake he made at the start of the season with all of the evidence laid out in front of him. All right, we are going to bring my guy Carson to play some games. How's it going, man? I'm great, Jason. How are you? I'm annoyed, man.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, I I actually could pick up on that. All right, well, we're going to pick the mood up here because... We've got the five biggest questions from around the NBA for you tonight. And the first one is related to a game that you already mentioned, and that was the Grizzlies going out and beating the Healthy Suns without four of their top guys. And they're now 20-2 and without Jaw this season. So is that a big deal to you?
1: We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and
1: conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, it's funny because I I remember when the Nets lost in Memphis without Jaw the other night. I did this whole thing about how young athletic teams at home in front of a raucous crowd are like a buzzsaw when they really, really want to win a game. And I watched the first few minutes of that game and I'm like, yep, textbook buzzsaw. Because, you know, and this is this is the 20 and 2 thing means nothing to me as it relates to Jaw. Has nothing to do with how valuable Mm -hmm. Jaw is to the team. Has nothing to do with this team's ceiling in terms of what it looks like when it has Jaw on the floor. What it does tell me is that this team, you know, I've said a lot about the Suns, that they are the most talented team in the NBA from top to bottom. What Memphis is showing us by them going 20 and two without Jaw is that they are very much right up there with Phoenix. Not quite there. I don't think they quite have the high-end players. But I think I, I think Memphis has a lot more talent than we've given them credit for. And that's something we should probably factor in when we're talking about their ceiling.
2: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the talent there, but I think... The number to me that stands out most from when they haven't had jaws that in those 22 games they have a defensive rating of 101.5 which would be like almost 5 points better than the best actual defense in the league and I just think since Taylor Jenkins got there he has done such a remarkable job of establishing a defensive culture with like you said a young group that's abnormal to be one of the 5 6 youngest teams in the league and be that great defensively. So do you think that he deserves more credit in like the coach of the year conversation? Is he under underappreciated in that way?
1: Absolutely. I I I would credit the front office as well, but like, yeah. you know, you hit the word on the head. It's it, you hit the nail on the head with that word culture, because. You're right. It's super uncommon for young basketball teams to be really good on the defensive end of the floor. The main reason why is because defense is about so defense is so much more complicated than people think. Like LeBron came into the league as an absolute freak athlete. He was not a good defensive player the first 3 or 4 years that he was in the league because defense is so so much about focus. So, you, it is such a brain game that people don't understand. And I remember this even when I was playing like the extent of time you have to spend memorizing plays so that you don't get surprised by screens. Like, it's just, it's such a silly thing to think about. But, like, how often, like, because if you're not paying attention and you don't know where the screen is coming from, teams disguise actions really well and you can run headlong into somebody and the whole defensive uh, uh, concept breaks down. It is so difficult to be a good defensive player. And it is so much, it's so much more than just are you big, strong, and fast. And so to Taylor Jenkins' credit, you know, because uh, there's so many things in offense that you can't control, making shots, you know, how Mm -hmm. uh, the rhythm, role players are, uh, role players, are they gonna feel good one night or they're gonna feel bad one night? But there's one thing that you can always control and it's what you do on the defensive end of the floor because it's all about effort and focus. And so to Taylor Jenkins' credit, He's established a culture there and as long as it's like it's like keeping the main thing the main thing as long as that's always on the front burner as long as that's always the thing at the top of the player's minds and you establish that early it becomes almost like reactionary it's almost like instinctual you defend because that's just what you do and that's what's so hard about this laker team is like they they have the opposite of that instinct they have to go out of their way to defend because it is not instinctual for them because it is not ingrained in their culture and it But to Taylor Jenkins' credit, like, that's really difficult to do with young players, and he somehow managed to pull it off.
2: So now that they are standing here and they're lapping the competition for the second-best record in the league, what do you think is a successful season for them at this point when it comes to how far they can get in the playoffs?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean they're not going to say this kind of thing in the locker room. In the locker room, they're talking title or bust, as they should, because when you when you have mm-hmm. the second best, like, people don't realize this. Like, you know, we were just talking about home court and the buzz saw. They're going to have home court over anybody in the Eastern Conference if they make it to the finals. So Memphis yeah. basically has the home court locked up for the first round, the second round, and the finals. The only round that they're going to have to go on the road is if they play Phoenix. So they they, they are poised and set. For a legitimate playoff run here, now, I expect that they would lose to Phoenix and possibly earlier because you know the other the next the the next issue with youth is understanding how to win in a playoff environment, and you know historically young teams have struggled there the The thunder in two thousand and twelve are a great example. they were favored going into that series they were significantly more talented the the The, the heat were just smarter. And as that series progressed, they've won four games to one in a series that probably should have gone six or seven games because they won all of the basketball IQ areas of the game. That's going to be their biggest shortcoming. But I, I would say if they made it to the Western Conference Finals and went down admirably in like six games, that's a massive resounding success for the season. But I'm sure inside the locker room, they're talking title or bust.
2: All right. Biggest question from around the league tonight, number two. The Nuggets lost tonight. Jokic had 38-19-8, and eight, but still that MVP race is getting so tight right now with the way that Giannis has been surging as of late. So does that loss hurt Jokic's MVP case?
1: You know, I don't think Jokic is hurting his MVP, MVP case as much as, as Giannis is helping it. So, mm-hmm. the re what, you know, Jokic is considered the MVP frontrunner for two reasons, in my opinion. One is he's been incredible, but two is we don't have a traditional candidate in the sense that we don't, we didn't have like one of the best records in the league that has like a bona fide like Titan of the NBA at the top, right? You know, it's not like you know, Steph Curry and the Warriors in 2016, it's not like LeBron James and the Heat in 2013. You don't have these, this like Best team in the league, clearly one of the best players. And so Jokic kind of capitalized on that. He's going to end up finishing up with the sixth seed. And Giannis is going to end up probably as the one seed, averaging 30 30 points per game and potentially winning the scoring title, depending on how things go with LeBron here down the stretch. So like, I, I think Giannis is just starting to demonstrate to us a very traditional MVP case, and that's why he should win. And for the record, I'm okay with it. Like, I really like Jokic. But I think we've jumped the gun on him a little bit. You can run him off the floor in transition, and he's, and he's only good defensively in drop coverage. So there's a lot of different ways you can attack him. He has some glaring weaknesses. And we just have guys at the top of the league that don't have glaring weaknesses. And you, know, you guys know me. Like I'm always going to defer to the proven guys. And I would much rather see Giannis get the trophy than Jokic for so many different reasons, not the least of which is he's just a better basketball player in, in almost every facet of the game.
2: Do you feel like that decision is kind of made for you at this point, or is there something that can still happen down the stretch in these last five, six games?
1: You know, if for whatever reason the Bucs don't get the one seed, Jokic will get it mm-hmm. just because of the fact that there, he's got such strong voter support. Voter, a, yeah. a huge portion of the voter base relies on advanced metrics for their decision. I, I, I find catch-all metrics to be almost offensive because basketball is such a beautiful and complicated sport. I don't understand the need to try to apply one number to a player's impact. I respect Mm -hmm. the people who try to figure that out. I just, for me, it's like basketball blasphemy. So I avoid it with a 10 foot pole, but like Jokic has the support of all the advanced metrics and a lot of the voters rely on that kind of thing. They would love for a reason to vote for him. So if Giannis for whatever reason doesn't get the one seed, I think Jokic gets it easy, but I, I think Jokic, I think, I think Giannis sees that as an achievable goal and the team Mm. is good enough to get the wins to do it. So I would expect Giannis to get it. Although I think the benching players tonight had more to do with the back to back than them punting the one seed. I will
2: say Jokic winning. It would be a really interesting rewriting of the precedent, just because even though the nuggets have been statistically with him on the floor, like on par, even with the bucks, they've been a great team. I think from 88 until last year, Jordan won it as a three seed in eighty eight, and then Russ won it as a six seed in twenty seventeen. And every other winner was a top two seed. So if he were to do it in back to back years, being a four and a six seed, that would certainly be, as you talk about, you know, not having a traditional historical candidate. That would be kind of a rewriting of that precedent, which would be interesting. So you mentioned the Bucks sitting there, guys, tonight, and you know, not exactly sure on the motivations behind that. But do you think that teams out east should? Try and tank and avoid that one seed, so they don't have to face Brooklyn, or the two seed potentially as well.
1: You know, it's funny because this is a this is a conversation that comes up of uh, a lot frequently because of the concept of load management, the way teams are very very careful with the way they take care of their stars, and mostly keep their eye on the long term goals of the postseason and you're seeing more and more frequently really really good teams fall down in the standings for that reason not the, not the least of which has been the Lakers the last couple of years i have a very very firm policy on this kind of stuff don't screw with the basketball gods anytime you ever play basketball in a way that 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 deliberately limits your potential i view that as playing I, and you know some people don't believe in this kind of thing i always have it's just you know yeah. There's there's a reason why some shots go in and some shots don't. Some people think it's just luck. For me, it's like I I'm a big believer in like confidence and flow and rhythm and 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 I think that like the best example of this was the Bucs last year. They had an opportunity to tank their way out of having to play the Miami Heat in the first round, the same Miami Heat that embarrassed them in the bubble. And instead they were like, no, we're gonna whoop your ass now, and then we're gonna whoop your ass in the playoffs. And and I, I, that's just to me. I think that's just like the the appropriate way to go about something like that.
2: Yeah, I'm with you all the way on that one. I would not be tempting the basketball gods because they are cruel and vicious. All right, so we mentioned <laughs> on yesterday's we mentioned on yesterday's show that Draymond was having Jason Tatum on his podcast, the Draymond Green Show, and one of the things that came out of that was Draymond told Tatum that he should be the MVP of the NBA next year. And he's sort of worked his way into the outskirts of that conversation this year just with how phenomenal he's been the last couple of months and the Celtics, you know, having the best record in the league for the last 30-ish games. But what do you think? Is he a future MVP candidate? Is he a guy you expect to win that award someday?
1: I absolutely think that he's, uh, he's going to be a perennial MVP candidate moving forward. You know, Actually, winning the award is really difficult. I, as much as we talk about MVP, we do it because it's just kind of part of being an NBA fan. It's probably my least favorite NBA award because if it were up to me, we would have an MVP that we give after the season, like after the finals. And it would just simply be who's the best player in the league. I would I I I just I hate how frequently we play these stupid mind games to talk ourselves into one player being better than another because of regular season results. It's a huge pet peeve of mine. So I'm not a huge fan, and for that reason, Tatum might never win an MVP because the advanced analytics community gets behind a different guy each year or, you know, narratives can play a big role in that kind of a thing too. So he might not ever get one, but I expect him to be near the top. I have him so Right. This year I have the three big ones up top, Jokic, you know, Giannis and Bede. Then I have Luca kind of in another tier right down there at four. And then below that, it's like John Moran, Devin Booker, Jason Tatum all fighting for that fifth spot. And you could make a realistic case for Tatum to finish fifth there. The Celtics have been arguably the best team in the league here down the stretch. When you look at the way Tatum has played since January, it's really, really high level stuff. Like, Like peak small forward type of stuff. He's averaging 30 points extremely efficiently, especially in the last month. He's starting to shoot the three really, really well. He's an amazing defensive player and he's taken massive leaps as a playmaker. When you watch the Celtics now, Jason Tatum is basically getting doubled all over the floor and still giving you 30 every night. He is like, so 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 much better than i think people think and a lot of this has to do with the fact that the laker fan base is a very loud fan base it's a large loud fan base and they have made jokes at tatum's expense for a long time there's actually a lot of anti-celtic sentiment uh on twitter and there's a lot of or uh, in the, the the general nba fan base and like i think that has caused people to sleep on him a little bit he's firmly a top 10 player in the NBA, in my opinion, right now. Like, I would take him hands down over a guy like James Harden right now. He's, like, creeping up to that. I kind of have that tier right below the big three guys, right below Giannis, LeBron, and KD. I kind of have, like, the Jokic, MB, Luka tier type of guys. I mm. put Tatum right in that next tier right there, which is, which is not an easy tier to make your way into. He is, on any given night, capable of outplaying any player in the league. I love his game.
2: Yeah, and you talk about just his overall evolution. How much better do you think he can actually get from here? And is he just, like, the clear successor to the Kawhis, the KDs, as, like, you know, maybe not on that level historically, but the top-score first wing in basketball for however long?
1: Absolutely. I I would say that there's a case. Here's the thing. Since January, he's been that guy. Since January, Mm -hmm. he's been peak Kawhi. You guys know the way that we do this. We're not going to heap that praise on you for doing it January, February, March. You got to do it in April, May, June. So like, but now for the record, I expect him to do so. Hopefully the Robert Williams injury doesn't end up being too much. There's word that he could come back in the second round. I am hopeful that that Tatum gets a chance to show it this season. But like, I'm not going to heap that praise early. But what I would, I would compare this run that we're seeing from Tatum right now, cut... D- different player archetype different ceiling potentially Seth, uh, Steph, the Steph Curry is one of the best players to ever play the game but it kind of reminds me of Steph in 2014 2013 where you're like holy cow like this guy's like a legit star like like super superstar and that's kind of the way I view Tatum like he's in the infant stages of his ascendancy into being one of the top five players in the NBA. like I, th- That's how highly I view him. I, I, I'm not trying to deliberately use hyperbole. Like This dude is so incredibly good. Like, people have no idea how good he's been playing this last couple of months. He's, he's one of a handful of guys in the league that is just getting doubled every time down the floor. And you literally have to, because if you leave him on an island, if you let him play pick and roll, he's going to burn you shooting threes uh, as guys die on screens. And he's actually, like, really good going to the basket now, which used to be a weakness of his. He's added a little bit of strength. He's got an incredibly quick first step. His handle's a lot better than it used to be. He's just a freaking monster right now.
2: Yeah, I think he's one of the most skilled scorers of the basketball of my lifetime, which isn't that long. You know, but, like, the blend of footwork and balance and – pure shot making and handle it his size. Like the guy who's just built to score the basketball. So I'm all in with you on the Tatum praise. All right. Last big question of the night. The Pelicans obviously went out and got the win tonight. They have really looked in a lot of ways like a different team since McCollum got there and just over the past 20 something games. And now they're sitting up in the nine seed. but obviously the Zion question remains ever relevant. So just factoring in all of that, what do you make of their future as a team?
1: I like their future. I don't think they're going to do anything this year. They're gonna they're gonna get out of the they're gonna get out of the plane They're gonna beat the Spurs. Uh, actually, they'll lose to the they'll lose to the Clippers. So they're not even gonna get out of the play-in this year. If they did, they'd lose to the Suns and they get swept. So like, but what I, what I like about the way that they've gone is you know. Brandon Ingram hasn't played great defense really since he left the Lakers until this season. Just in this last stretch of the season, he's starting to play a lot better defense. They, they have had a massive issue with front court defense. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Zion, and this is a a huge issue with NBA player uh, um, scouting over the course of the last few years. Every time anybody sees an undersized power forward, they instantly go, hey, it's the next Draymond Green. And then they realize that Draymond Green's a complete unicorn and no one else can actually do what he does. Well, Zion Williamson is not up to the defensive task and they're going to have to probably play him alongside a center or alongside a ton of really rangy switchy athletic wings and what do you know they went out and they found a couple of them and uh uh, Trey Murphy and and uh I'm blanking on his name now all of a sudden the guy that guarded LeBron all night tonight but like combine that with Brandon Ingram you know there's basically the way I see it. there's two approaches to defense there's the Frank Vogel approach which is uh, which have have a dominant rim protector and then chase everybody off the three point line and funnel them into the paint the other way to have an elite defense in the NBA these days is to have a bunch of guys that can guard on the perimeter. And so if you have a lineup that has a CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram, two freaky athletic wings and Zion, that's where you can contain ball handlers and wrote and your length and athleticism allows you to cover ground in rotations. It's like a, it's like a much more modern approach to defense. It's something that I believe very strongly. And so like them uh, to David Griffin's credit, for how much he's screwed up since he got there, the finding uh, the couple of wings that they found to put alongside Brandon Ingram has raised the athletic profile of those lineups. And so I'm excited about what they could potentially be, but they need Zion to get back. They need a, a full, they need him to come in in shape and they need him to be able to be a good, at least a good perimeter defender that can contain ball handlers and at least rotate around on the backside since he can't be Draymond, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, shout-out to the great Herb Jones there, the second wing. Herb Jones, thank you. Big sometimes, too. That guy kind of does it all. I think He's a really fun rookie. He's been very impressive. All right, I lied, Jason. That was not the last question. We have a bonus (laughs) one here, and I think it's going to frustrate you because we have a couple of wild quotes from Lakers tonight. Two of your favorite Lakers. Oh, no. Frank Vogel on the choice to bench Austin Reeves and THT tonight. Quote, This is a playoff game for us. Use the roster however you see fit in terms of that matchup. And I've got one more for you here. You can react to both. Russell Westbrook on how the Crypto.com Arena crowd affects the team's performance. I don't pay attention to this crowd, to be honest. What are your thoughts?
1: (laughs) All right, I'm going to start with Russ. I am so sick of his obstinance towards the Laker fan base. Dude, they don't like you because you suck. That's why they don't (laughs) like you. They don't like you because you suck. And not only do you suck you're obstinate about it, you're stubborn about it, and you think it's everyone else's fault except for your own. There hasn't been a single moment this season where Russ has come out and said, I'm not good enough at basketball now that I've lost my athleticism, I need to make an improvement. That lack of self-awareness, that lack of accountability, combined with his poor play, combined with his shit attitude, has turned this fan base against him. And I, I, did, I did a big video on this about a month ago, and I stand by it. I have no problem with the Laker fan base heckling Russ. I have no problem with the Laker fan base giving him a hard time. He has earned every bit of it. And I literally cannot wait for this experiment to be over. I cannot wait for I, I cannot root for a Russell Westbrook team ever again. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. As far as Frank Vogel goes, you know, again, like I said earlier, we have data sets here, man. I literally we we know that this team plays better with Austin THT Monk and Stanley than they do with Areza Bradley, you know, Baysmore Dwight. They just do. They just simply do. And so and and again, like the who knows what's going on behind the scenes. It's possible that LeBron went to him and said I want to go down with the vets, but I doubt it. I think this is Frank. I think this is Frank leaning into his comfort zone. He literally DNP coaches decisioned Avery Bradley 3 of the last 4 games. In the one game he played, I think he only played like 16 minutes. So he's played like literally 4 minutes per game over the previous 4 games and you threw him into the fire tonight. When we literally know that he plays that the, that LeBron and AD play better with the young guy like <sighs> I wish you wouldn't have read those to me, Carson.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I feel terrible. I got your blood boiling, and now you got to go find a way to unwind and, and sleep after this, after the vibes started <sighs> to get more positive. But, you know, it's entertaining, I got to say.
1: Yeah, That is what it is. All right. Well, thank you, Carson. I appreciate the game, man. These are fun. All right, guys. That's all we have for tonight. I think we need to call it. And then we can rejoin this roller coaster on Sunday as they attempt to get a win over the Denver Nuggets. As always, I sincerely appreciate your guys' support. We will be back after the final buzzer on Sunday when the Lakers probably lose to the Denver Nuggets. I will see you guys in a couple of days.